Um, and Romans 8. Wow, let's read from uh, 26 uh, to 32. I think these are my seven favorite consecutive verses still. Um, and probably might be until I get to heaven, I think, and maybe even in heaven. But um, today, Josh, would you read those and uh, pray for us? And then we are getting after mostly the golden chain with a little bit of going back to uh, uh, last week and, and enjoying 28 a little bit more as well. All right, verse 26 of chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Father, what a privilege to come to such high and lofty ground in your word. Thank you for these truths, the unbreakable chain, and for the work that you have done, that you have accomplished, and you have orchestrated from eternity past to eternity future. Pray that these truths would move our hearts today, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love that the Lord through Paul put this in here. We know this. These are things that we know. There's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot that we don't know why things happen, for sure. We don't know why our trials are going on. But we know this, for sure, that God is orchestrating every one of them for our good, which is also for his glory. And, uh, and I would just argue that I think that's really all we need to know. How do we remember it? That's probably the bigger problem. I misquoted Mark last week. I'm going to quote Mark again because I misquoted him last week. Um, this is, Mark says two reasons that makes this hard. First of all, do we um, believe the verse? And then the second thing that I forgot last week that he said is, do I really want what's good from God's perspective? That is a hard question, I think. Because what's good for God's perspective is not necessarily going to be comfortable or fun, right? So that's, and now we're going to get that whether we like it or not, I think, which is I'm thankful for. But is that really what we want more than anything else? Is that what you want more than anything else is to be more, become more Christ-like? That is the good here, and we're going to feast on that from verse 29 but the good, I think, is just equivalent to be conformed to the image of his son in verse 29. And so that's sanctification. You know that you will be sanctified this week. We know it. It says right there, and we know that for those who love God, and this is every believer, but it's only believers. This is only believers, but it's absolutely every one of us. That knows Christ. That's what we have to look forward to um, today. Remember, synergy is where we get, or this phrase, all things work together, 
is from that word, um, synergy, and, and there's these poisonous events, if you will, that go on in our life. If anybody had, had to list, like the, I don't know, the 100 biggest events that happened to you this week, some of them were pretty enjoyable, some of them were not so enjoyable, but all of them, all 100 of them, are working together to make you more like Jesus. That's the key. So, if you want to be more like Jesus, you are at the right place at the right time because that's what God's doing. And he's going to do it no matter what. So I guess, once again, we would say, since that's true, let's enjoy it. I got a little bit concerned this week in my own life and maybe in, for you too, that we weren't enjoying this like we ought to be, that I wasn't, and I know I wasn't. You know, I think we just need to grow each week in our enjoyment of it. It's true. Sins is true. Let's hold on to it to all we're all we're good for and just enjoy it. And that would just change again so many things. No more worry, no more fear, no more complaining. Nobody complains about what's good, but it's all good. Right? Now, one more quick thing on that. It and these guys did a great job of talking about this last week. But just to re, um, reiterate, not all things are good, right? There's a lot of bad things going on. Anything that's sinful is bad. But God orchestrates it. God synergizes it to make it work together for good. So there's two different things there, and I don't think we want to um, get, those, get those mixed up. Here's what um, I'm excited about uh, this week. Josh and Grant are going to kind of go back and forth, and then Scott um, is going to give some uh, color commentary yeah. on these great five words. The golden chain, we call them. We call them the golden chain because they can't be broken. There's five things that now we know will happen, have happened, and will happen. From eternity to eternity is what Boyce said, has covered um, in this chapter. We were foreknown. We were predestined, we were called, we were justified, and uh, and it's as good of a done deal because it's past tense that we're going to be glorified. So if you're a believer, four of these have already happened, um, and that last one um, is going to happen. But um, who's starting? Grant, you starting? I think so. Can I go in before you go start, ahead, Grant, please. just to offer a few um just points on the introduction of these five words. So we're looking at these, I mean, monumentally important five words spanning eternity past all the way to eternity future. One pastor called this the center cut of the filet um, in Romans 8. And so if last week we looked at how God, or God working all things together for good, this week we're looking at how he accomplishes that. What are these links in, the, in his salvific plan? And uh, we know just in the tense of the verbs here, his, his plan of salvation will not fail. And uh, each truth marches lockstep with the next one so that they are truly unbreakable and a, a demonstration of God's character. And um, they're, they're, you may go into this, but they're all about what God has done. It's not a, um, saying what we do, but this is an um, explanation or, or a demonstration about what God has accomplished and what he will do in the future. And um, I'm excited to hear what Grant's got for us. Yeah, I think that's important for us to keep 
uh, in the back of our mind as we go through this is that we as believers are the recipients of all these things that we're going to talk about. Uh, God is the one who's doing this, initiates it, and completes it. We just receive it. Um, but it is five links in the golden chain. It's foreknowledge, predestination, being called, being justified, and being glorified. Uh, it's a path for every believer. And the golden chain starts in eternity past with God. And then it dips into the present um, in historical events with justification and being called. And then it goes back up into and glorified would be present and eternally future, uh, the eternal future designation for us. But it starts with foreknowledge, and it's a little funny that I'm the one handling foreknowledge because your understanding of foreknowledge will um, determine how you understand salvation. So it's the first link in the order of salvation. Um, so it's the basis for the predestination. So how you understand this will really affect how you view how we're saved. Who initiates it? Uh, is it some of us, some of God? Is it all of God? Is it all of us? So starting with that, uh, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So this foreknowledge, typically for us foreknowledge means just knowing an event before it's going to happen in the future. It's where we get the Greek word for this. Maybe Tyler can get a chuckle about midweek of me pronouncing this, but... Uh, <coughs> Prognosco, I think is what you say, but um, it's where we get the word prognos prognosis from. What's the prognosis for this? What's the likely outcome that you foresee coming in the future for whatever this course of action is? Um, but in this context, is that all it means? Does it mean that God sees down the path of time and he sees some event in the future and therefore orients his sovereign plan based on that event? Or is it something entirely different? Um, basically, all of the commentators that I read, that would be uh, Steve Lawson preached on this, all of the folks at Ligonier, um, Boyce, Schreiner, and I forget the last one. Oh, John Murray is big on this. Uh, I think probably any Reformed thinker would lean away from it's God looking down the path of time because that would describe a reactionary God, not a sovereign God. It would be some, a God who's reacting to some independent course of time and events that are happening and he's, you know, adjusting his plan to it. That would not be uh, what they would say. Uh, it's used, it's an interesting word because it's used a few times in the New Testament, and it can, it's tricky because it can be referring to knowing an event before it happens. But typically that's when it's used to describe some event or thing in time. But when it's used in relation to a person, it can take on an entirely different meaning. And all of those guys, especially Lawson, preached on this, that you have to have a good understanding of the word to know, especially in, I won't try to pronounce it in Hebrew, but in the Old Testament, the word to know is more so, it's more than just knowing a fact about something or knowing an event. It can surely mean knowing an event that's going to come in the future, but we know from Genesis that Adam knew his wife Eve. It's way more than just him knowing about her. It's an intimate, uh, loving uh, knowledge of her, something way different than just knowing about and uh, the looking down the path of time would be uh, how people would get around, I think, the sovereignty of God, where they would say God sees faith in us forward in time, and therefore uh, all those that he sees faith in, that we, where they re independently respond positively to the gospel call, those are the ones he predestines. But I think that suffers from, uh, I'm, I'm probably not nuancing that view 
Well, but I think just the basis of it, it suffers from a few flaws that uh, God is looking forward in time to an event. His foreknowledge is based on an event, but we see here that it's uh, based on persons for those whom he foreknew. He fore, he's foreknowing people, not events in people's lives. The other would be uh, the whole idea of the free choice of the person's response is read into the text. So you have God looking forward into, into, uh, down the path of time, and therefore he sees faith from the person enacting on their own behalf. That's like completely read into the text. It's not there to be found. Um, if the person freely chose or chooses God based on his general call, why does he then need to go back and then predestines them if they're already going to receive him by faith? You just get into a weird circular argument with that. Uh, and then the final one that's probably the most serious would be this makes God reactionary rather than truly sovereign. He's just reacting to an event in time. So what if it's not that, what does foreknowledge actually mean? Um, what does it mean if it's not in response to an event but it's a response to a person? So if we go back into the Old Testament, uh, it's more than known facts about someone. When used in relation to a person, it generally speaks about God singling this person out in love for an appointed purpose and is frequently coupled with his sovereign will for that person. Him placing his covenant love upon that person or people group, uh, there's nothing pointing to a knowledge of a particular event in a person's life, but more about the intimate, affectionate knowledge or relation of the person to the person themselves. And there's, there's examples of that all over the Old Testament, but a couple that I found here that could maybe highlight this term to know that we'll get to the uh, foreknowledge in the New Testament would be in Genesis with Abraham. This is Genesis 18, 19, talking about Abraham. It says, Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For those whom I, uh, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. And that word, I have chosen him, is the Hebrew word to know. I have known him. Uh, that would mean God has an intimate knowledge of him. He's set his affection on him. It's not just he knows about Abraham. He knows about all people all the time. But this is a special uh, affectionate love, uh, intimate knowledge of Abraham. It's different from just a knowledge about him. And this one I think is really interesting. It's Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you, talking about Jeremiah becoming a prophet, God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This I knew you term is more than just him, God, seeing that Jeremiah's going to become a prophet because we see that God appoints him to become a prophet. He intimately knows he has selected in his effectual love of Jeremiah to ordain or consecrate, set aside Jeremiah to become a prophet of God. So it's way different than just knowing about Jeremiah. It's an intimate love and setting aside, setting his affection on Jeremiah for a designed purpose. And then another, the last one in the Old Testament, Amos 3, 2, uh, it says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And the NIV renders this word known as chosen as well in this context. And it's not that God doesn't know all the other peoples of the earth. Of course, he knows intimately every detail of every person and people group. This is him selecting Israel, putting his covenant love upon these people and not putting it upon these others, him singling them out in affectionate love and choosing them. So I think that continues into the New Testament as well and sort of in a negative light, we can see this in the New Testament for the word uh, knowing or to know. From Matthew 7, 21 through 23, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name 
and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Obviously, Jesus Christ would know who they are in detail, but it's uh, intimate, affectionate, loving, I never knew you. You were never part of my people. You're not part of my family. So that would be uh, what this word to know is. It's setting your love upon someone. And putting the, the foreknowledge on the front of that would just be setting your love upon them in eternity past. God selected uh, all those whom he foreknew. He selected and putting his affectionate love on them. Uh, and I think this is similar to what we see in Ephesians. Paul words it maybe a little bit differently. He says in Ephesians 1.5, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I think that has the ring of the golden chain to it a little bit. It's not exactly one for one, but uh, we see that he fixes his love on us and us, predestines us as sons. Well, that's the glorification uh, through Jesus Christ. That's the justification according to the purpose of his will. That's his sovereign call. So we see this in love he predestines us. It's him putting this love on us and then predestining us. Uh, predestining us. Um, maybe the last thing I'll say on this is uh, uh, one disagreement that uh, I saw that people put forward with this is if that's the case, then you're just collapsing predestination and foreknowledge together. They're basically the same thing, God choosing his people for a determined purpose. But I think that kind of misses the nuance of the terms, and, and Josh will probably get into that. Uh, his foreknowledge is showing his choosing and putting his affectionate love on someone, but it doesn't describe what he's going to do with that person now that he's chosen them in love. The predestining, that's when you get to what's their end uh, goal, the end of that person determined from the beginning. It's, it's still separate from the foreknowledge. Um, and John Murray just says that you could say instead of uh, foreknowledge or uh, what's the verse? I'm losing it here. For those whom he foreknew, it could just be for those whom he foreloved. That could be the same way of reading. That's how John Murray would say. I think that's interesting in connecting that to predestination. It sort of sets the tone for uh, God is still the one doing it, and we're just receiving his affectionate love in eternity past. Good. Scott, I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts there, but one thing I would say, and Grant covered that so well, but let's say it was that God just looked down the corridor of time and said, oh, they're going to come and choose me, and they're going to choose me. Well, then how many of us would... Uh, choose him, remember 8, 7, and 8. You don't have to go back very far. For the mind that says the flesh is hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So that would mean nobody would end up glorified, justified, called, predestined, foreknown. If he's going by that, then there is a name. We know, even logically, that that's not what happened. Because... You know, you those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You know, go back to chapter 3. Um, no one's righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So he looks down the corridor of time, and that's what he sees in us. That we have no ability. And so God 
four no's, and we'll get to predestined in a second. Scott? Yeah, I man, that's what Spurgeon said. Like, if God hadn't chosen me, I never would have chosen God for sure. And I mean, I was thinking that same thing. Like, God could have taken my life and said, I'm going to look all the way down to the end of his life. Yeah, he's still dead in sins. Like, it's all, it's all, all of God. Uh, so I think the big picture would be, what is the reason why you're a Christian? I think that's what Derek Thomas said. Why are you a Christian? And many people may say, well, I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I, did, I knelt beside my parents' bed or whatever. They, and that's not the ultimate right answer. That may be in the moment. But that's not the right answer. The reason you're a Christian is because God has done something. I mean, we were, we were dead in, in sins. And he quoted this part of the hymn that said, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. So God set his affection on you in eternity. I mean, this is absolutely amazing, which we can, I can say multiple times. But one passage just said, he knew you in advance, not just what you would do or choose or think or say, but you yourself. He knew you. He knew you with the intimate fullness of that word in biblical usage. Those whom he foreknew, it is not foreseen behavior, but foreloved persons that occupy the mind of God. In verse 29, which is exactly what Grant is saying. And then he keeps going, before there was any love, in my heart or in your heart for him, while we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins, still suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and exchanging the truth of God for a lie in our hearts, even then he loved us and was at work according to the designs of that love to bring us to himself. He did not love us because we were lovely. So again, God set his love on us before time began. I mean, this is stunning, amazing. Fill in, fill in the words you want to use. And so I've said before, like if you doubt God's love, go to the cross, go to Golgotha, see Jesus suffering for you. But if you doubt God's love, come to the golden chain, mm-hmm. come to Ephesians 1, and be freshly reminded, it's all of God from beginning to end. He's got me. He's holding me. I mean, oh, it's just amazing stuff. And we would want it like that, wouldn't we? We don't want it. We know better. There isn't anybody that really says, I was just a little sharper than the next guy. That's how I got the gospel. I don't think anybody really says that or even believes that. I think in our minds, we know how desperate we were for a savior and that it was impossible by ourselves. Josh, I'm really looking forward to this. Predestined, controversial. Like sometimes I even hear somebody say, some of my students will say, well, I don't think I really, I don't believe in predestination. And that, that doesn't really work. I mean, I think I know what they're saying. They don't believe in it in the, in the way you're going to explain it. But, uh, but it's just a scriptural word that is uh, really rich. Yeah, I, um, you know, probably it'd be hard to find another word that evokes a more visceral reaction with people when you talk about predestination, but um, ultimately we want to try to understand what God's Word says and what these words have, what these words mean in their context, and and then what that means for us. And I thought Grant did a great job explaining foreknowledge, and I agree. I think it it means God setting His special covenant to love on on his people and um, certainly there's a lot of overlap with that word in predestination but I think predestination is the second link in this chain includes the end goal here and Paul says in verse uh, 29 for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so if, if the foreknowledge is that special covenantal love then uh, predestination here is that we would be predestined to be ultimately like Christ. And so literally in the Greek, the word means to decide beforehand. And uh, to God has determined a specific destiny. I think the emphasis here is on God's gracious, sovereign decision. And it's according to his pleasure, his will, his plan, 
his purpose um, that we are conformed to the image of Christ. And we all know before any of us could even choose Christ, he chose us. And we see this in some other passages, Ephesians 1, which Grant read, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And we see that connection again with um, uh, being conformed to the image of his son, that we'd be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. And then a little bit later in verse 11 of Ephesians 1, Paul says, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we're talking about uh, God's decree, his good pleasure out of his plan. He has predestined us. Um, Just kind of a basic summary there. I I think a lot of times this word evokes such strong reactions because people start thinking, well, what does this mean for evangelism? Or what does this mean for my own salvation? This doesn't seem to be the way that it worked. And I thought um, Jared Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, is really, really helpful. And he says we truly all believe in predestination, and he gives two examples. Uh, He says we give thanks to God for our conversion. Ultimately, we know it was him who saved us. We know that (laughs) we didn't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We know that he saved us. And then also we... Uh, secondly, pray for the conversion of others. We ask God to intervene, to work in the lives of others who don't yet know him. And I'm just going to read a quote from Stott, but he, he walks through maybe five of the most common objections, and that's where I got the quote from Jai Packer. But um, on 250 to 251, I just thought a really good summary of these objections and then how how biblically would respond to. I'm not going to read all of those, but I'm going to just read his summary. Stott says, So the doctrine of divine predestination promotes humility, not arrogance, assurance, not apprehension, responsibility, not apathy, holiness, not complacency, and mission, not privilege. And I think when we when we understand predestination, surely it's not going to produce any kind of arrogance in us when we think about it rightly because we know uh, it's going to create the opposite. It's going to promote humility. Instead of boasting with a sort of high-nosed, better-than-others attitude that God chose us, which would be a completely wrong understanding, we know that it was nothing in us. We were deserving only of wrath, but out of God's own good pleasure, he set us aside and predestines us to be like Christ. So it truly is a great place to, or a great doctrine to think about in producing humility in our own hearts. That's good. Scott? Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to tie in something with, with last time, what you were doing at the beginning, just just real quick in terms of this being conformed to the image of his son. Like, that's the good. He's defining the good from 28 into 29. And it's so important for us to remember that it's not the good that we define, that, that we come up with. No, he's going to, every situation, he's going to conform us to the image of his son. And I mentioned last time, church history, watching people suffer well, watching this guy suffer well, that helps me. And so I've mentioned this before, but I'll go really quickly through George Mueller and his wife. He, he loved his wife. They, they had this orphanage together. He prayed literally thousands of times and saw God answer prayer. His wife, is, they, they've been married almost 40 years. She gets very sick. She's, she's near death, and he's praying for her healing. And he, here's, he, he's seen God answer tens of thousands of times, and this time God doesn't answer in the affirmative. But watching him trust this type of goodness, it's not his, his definition of goodness. He's trusting the biblical definition of goodness, and he says, Therefore, if it is really good for me, he's talking this sense of good, my darling wife will be raised up again. 
sick as she is, God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. Again, he's a biblical good. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs comes from, as I've often said before, from taking God at his word, believing what he says. I mean, this is why Mueller's life to me is so compelling. He, he takes God's word, believes what he says. And then she, she's, she's dying. As she was dying, here's Mueller again. If God pleases to take my dearest wife, it will be good, like himself. What I have to do as his child is to be satisfied with what my father does, that I may glorify him. And then, then she dies and he preaches her sermon. Psalm 119.68 is his text. You are good and do good. And he had the three points. The Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. The Lord was good, point number two, and did good in so long leaving her to me. And then point number three is the hardest one, I think. The Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. But just to show, like, he loved this woman big time. And after this, you think, oh, wow, like, he must have just done it so, so easily. But then here's him later. This is what he said. Like, you can see the genuine sorrow. Every day I miss her more and more. Every day I see more and more how great her loss to the orphans. Yet, there's one little, the three-little word, yet, without an effort. My inmost soul habitually joys in the joy of that love departed one. He knows she's in heaven. Her happiness gives joy to me. My dear daughter and self would not have her back. Were it possible to produce it by the turn of the hand, God himself has done it. We are satisfied with him. And so I think when you come and you see a man suffer like that, you think, this is what we want to do. We want to take out his word. We want to believe what he said. We want to be satisfied in God. And when you do that, especially in suffering, God is greatly glorified in that. So again, we just we want to camp you out here, see, see the good there, and see the promise, and soak it until we really are satisfied and trust that no matter what happens, he's going to do Romans eight twenty nine in our lives, and we want to be trusting, satisfied. You know, I wouldn't that glorify the Lord so much through our lives if that was really us. So hold on to the word, believe it's true, live it out. That's, uh, Scott, thank you. Really, really good. Um, Grant, how about called, and you helped us with this a little bit last week, but um, this is a great word. Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I gave a shot last week, so it's good to get a, another chance at it. And so we've seen God fixes his love on us, and then he determines the course for us. He predestines us. So what next? What, what takes place in the order of salvation? Well, he would then initiate uh, salvation or justification with us through calling us. He, initi- he does the calling. Uh, this would be the effectual calling. Um, I don't think I did a good enough job last time in differentiating the general call and the effectual call, so I'll try to do that here today, and, and Mr. Jerry helped us a little bit last time, but I, when I read from Matthew, I don't think that was very clear, but the, the general call would be uh, just the general call of the gospel through the preaching and teaching of the word. Mark does it every Sunday, every time you evangelize someone, that's the general call that goes out, uh, and we, we will see this in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, where Jesus says, for many are called but few are chosen. That, that many are called would be the general call. And then the few that are chosen, that would be what we're talking about here, that uh, God uh, uh, setting his love on them, predestining them, calling them effectually, justifying them, and then glorifying them. Um, but we see that there's uh, an effectual call. John six forty four. no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. To me, that sounds very much like the golden chain. This speaks of the calling that we see uh, in this in this verse and future glorification of the saints through their resurrected body so it's initiated by God it's not something we can choose to do God initiates this we're so dead in sin we're not going to turn towards God is what they've been talking about this whole time God has to initiate in us there's not going to be any faith from us uh, left to ourselves down the tunnel of time we're going to always be at enmity with God apart from his uh, intervening grace so what is this calling because uh, we see 
that in the golden chain, the calling in here, all those that are called are justified, not, not some of them. It's not like the general call goes out and some are justified. So it's all that are called are justified. So it can't be the general call. This would be what's referred to as the effectual call. And the, uh, the, the definition given for the effectual call is understood to be as God's sovereign drawing of a sinner to salvation. The effectual call to a sinner so overwhelms his natural inclination to rebel that he willingly places his faith in Jesus Christ. And I still think one of the best uh, uh, examples of an effectual call, you could say Lazarus, the tomb of Lazarus, would be a effectual call. Jesus calls Lazarus, come forth, and he comes forth. There's no frustration of that call. There's no stopping it. If he, asks, if he calls Lazarus forth, Lazarus comes forth. But also in Romans 4.17, this is what Sproul hit on so well um, for the effectual call of God, where it says God gives life to the dead, very much like what happened with Lazarus, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Talking about creation. God um, called forth into existence all of creation, and, and it happened. There was not, um, as R.C. said, God did not plead with the darkness to let there be light, and then the darkness relented and light came. It was... He called something into being. It is always effectual. And Paul uses this in other places to describe himself, where it says Paul called to be called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we know from his calling, his uh, Damascus Road experience, there was nothing he initiated on himself except being there. Um, and God, or Christ, appeared to him, radically transformed him. He was struck blind. I don't know if he, maybe he didn't speak for several days. I'm not. I haven't read it in a while, but um, he was radically transformed by God. That was the effectual call of Paul, and that's the same thing that happens to us. He, um, he sets his love on us. He determines the course of our life, uh, the end of our life from the beginning and eternity past, and then he effectually calls us, and we've all experienced that in any of our testimonies. We've experienced that. I think, I know I did. It didn't feel like anything I was doing. Things were just happening to me. Interests were coming. Emotions were coming at the preaching of Mark and Jerry and Scott. Uh, Ian leading us in music. The music was stirring to me. It wasn't like I was choosing to all of a sudden have a religious bent in my life. I was just sort of existing in grad school. But that was the effectual call of God happening to me. I was being called to um, so effectually that my inclination to rebel against him relent like I, I couldn't resist him there's no resisting that amount of grace um, that that would be I guess a shot at the effectual calling before we get into justified yeah good Scott yeah I mean Grant has nailed it I mean dead men live when God calls in, in this way like I heard the general call probably hundreds of times in my life and it like didn't do anything and then the effectual call is like there's no resisting the effectual call but going back to the quote that I mentioned before like we're dead in sin and the guy said that even then he loved us and was at work according to the designs of that love to bring us to himself I could I could mention Grant but like God was at work there behind the scenes sort of with Wes the relationship with Wes and where's that guy Mark is what he's saying and walking over his baptist he goes with Wes to North Avenue Church he begins to listen he gets around Christians like God is at work during this whole time leading up to the point where he's in the lab listening to a sermon with the chemicals and all that stuff and the effectual call happens and then tears are coming he's like I got all this stuff on Grant's got to get out of there he's embarrassed but he's got to clean himself up the effectual call happened like dead men live Grant lived I thought about Sam like Sam was an atheist a couple years ago 
He puts him providentially with, could you have a better person to train you than Josh Garnick, who's naturally gifted at evangelism? And that's God already. You can see him working in Sam's life, building this friendship, building a relationship with him, gives him a Bible, telling him the gospel. Sam begins to read the gospel, and all of a sudden he's reading the gospel. There's the effectual call. Tears come down, and boom, it happens. I mean, you can just go around the room and, and think about that. I, to me, it's just it's moving to go back and just think, like, we were dead. There's a moment where God came in and just overwhelmed us with his grace, Oh, gave us new life. Uh, it's just it's a moving thing, and all praise to him. Yeah, don't ever let your testimony. I mean, you tell as many people of that. That's just stirring. That's stirring. I know Scott loves testimony, so do I. Get them at school. Get them at church. It, they that is that is fascinating. I I love this thought I, once again, uh, and it was Barnhouse I think telling a story about uh, somebody in his church, a man who had really explained his testimony. Sometimes we say, okay, I was. Uh, you know, I grew up in church, and I prayed a prayer, and, and the testimony ends up being quite a bit about us, really. But this man in Barnhouse's church gave God the glory from all, it's like, you know, he just talked all about God, 100%. And somebody kind of came up afterwards and said, well, you know, that was pretty neat testimony, but you really didn't say what you did. And he said, oh, yes, I should have mentioned that. I ran as far away from God as I could, as fast as I could, and God came after me. So that was the only thing. You know, it's kind of like, Grant, you, I think you kind of said it, is that our only righteousness is unrighteousness. You know, if we do mention what we did, it would only be in how hostile, how we wouldn't submit to God's law, how we couldn't submit to God's law, how we couldn't please him in any way. That is our part of the testimony. It wasn't that, yeah, I started to, uh, you know. No, no, no. Just keep it God-centered and God-focused because he did 100% of it. Just justified. And I guess called comes right before justified here. These are pretty, uh, as far as time goes, right? Pretty close the way we would understand it? I think so. You yeah. might could say more on it, but yeah, I, don't I think, think they I do happen <laughs> almost back to back. But yeah, um, definitely were called, and then there would the effectual call would happen, and then there would be, you know, the one time stamp of of justification accomplished by Christ. But you know, this is a word we've spent a lot of time talking about, sort of in comparison with the others. So I'm just trying to run through it sort of quickly. But justification is really. Uh, using its courtroom language. So we're talking about a, a verdict here, and we're, we're counted not guilty by the supreme judge, God in heaven, who will not let the guilty go unpunished. Uh, but we are, justification means we're declared righteous in his sight, and it's not a righteousness of our own that's been infused into us, but it's a, it's a declaration, it's an alien righteousness deposited into our, our account. It's something credited to us, it's counted on our behalf, um, it's imputed to us, and all of that, the work was accomplished by Christ, and then th- this is a declaration credited to us. And we see it, I'm just read a couple of verses here, probably some of the major pillars of Paul's letter to the Romans here are some of these verses. Verse 16 of chapter 1, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then, Jerry, your favorite five verses in all the Bible, Romans 3. Um, I'm going to start down at 23. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so... And just hit on a few other things. Maybe we didn't cover quite as much. And I was really helped by Steve Lawson on justification. Even this week, it felt like my understanding was uh, clarified even more. But it is a, a decisive one-time act. It's not um, something ongoing like sanctification would be, but it's a one-time thing, and it's fully accomplished. And so believers can be more or less sanctified in this life, but we can never be more or less justified. It's it's a, a one-time right standing before God, and it's uh, all of Christ. It's freely given by God, accomplished by Christ, and simply embraced and received by us by faith. And certainly it's undeserved and unmerited on our part. And um, no, nothing we do in the future can undo this um, justification. It can't be reversed. The verdict will never change. It's a, it's a permanent, fixed declaration. And I, I truly believe it is our, our greatest need, is a right standing before a holy God. Our greatest need in this life is that um, pronouncement of being right in God's sight, which is ultimately justification. <clears throat> yeah, it's great. They, um, sometimes people say, well, wait a second, where's sanctification in here? You could go after that to say, to be conformed to the image of his son. So that would be a good uh, I think definition of sanctification, kind of back to our Romans 8.28 good word, um, happens there. There are some things that uh, he does, some things about salvation that he doesn't mention in this golden chain, and we'll save glorified um, because it's so rich for um, for next week. Scott, finish this off here. What, what else have you seen that uh, you'd like to cover? Yeah, I mean, not a whole lot of, uh, I just think, it's comforting, uh, which you've talked about, like total, like the security of it. Like you, we may be uh, stumbling along in our Christian lives, and you come back to the, to the golden chain. Like God has loved me before eternity; He's going to keep me all the way to the end. I, I think the application would be: we're humbled. Uh, there is absolutely no way that I can boast. When you come back to this, you know we were dead in sins. It's all it's all of God. So I think we're humbled. Uh, no boasting possible. There is much service possible. I think we want to serve God in light of light of this news, all of grace. I want to get out there and, and honor Him. Uh, and I just think we need to meditate on this truth more than we do. Uh, and one guy just said, rather than run and hide from it, we need to linger, linger over it. I think we just need to, we need to soak in these precious promises. They're so precious until we, we love them more and more and, and want to honor God yeah, yeah. more fully. Good, great. Some final thoughts. I just, um, I do think it's moving to see that we're receiving all of this. Yeah. As enemies and rebels of God, maybe we'll hear about a little bit in the sermon of, of loving our enemy because God first loved us, but um, we received all this, all this goodness from God while we were still rebels. We didn't do anything in the golden chain. It's just we're there receiving um, all this wonderful, all these wonderful things from God and his perfect sovereign plan. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Josh? That's it. I, there's a, kind of a, uh, a, a fun, heartwarming story I just closed with. Um, I heard a teacher talk about this week, got too little bit, reminded me of you a lot, Miss Elizabeth. I thought about you throughout this story. Um, dealing with a little five-year-old, she got too 
little five-year-old twins that uh, are farm kids, like through and through, man. These guys are as rural as they come. So she was, they were talking about what they're going to be when they grow up. And, uh, and one of them was saying something, but um, he wasn't speaking very clearly, and she couldn't get it. It wasn't Farmer. That's what she was sure it was going to be, but it wasn't Farmer. And, uh, and, and, and he was trying to, to say the word, and teacher couldn't understand it. Finally said, he's got a hammer. He's got a hammer. Well, they thought, okay, well, maybe like construction worker? Because it was like, no, no. And finally, it was courtroom judge. Courtroom judge is what he wanted to be. And you know why he wanted to be a courtroom judge? Because he can tell everybody to be quiet. <laughs> that was the reason. He wanted to tell everybody to be quiet. And he had a hammer to do it. So they had that hammer telling everybody to be quiet. And I think when you talk about justification... Whoever is clamoring in your ear about you not being a believer, if you truly are, God has pounded the gavel in heaven. He is the true judge, and he has pounded that gavel in heaven, and there is, everybody else needs to just be quiet, right? If that's other people, if that's Satan, he condemns us, I think, sometimes. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because God has told everybody, nope, be quiet, I've justified you. Right? And then when you take the, um, the, uh, the idea of being adopted, like we talked about a few weeks ago in verses 14 to 17, then that takes that, the familial part, even one step, one step further. So such security, such security in that God does this all, and if God does it all, and we'll come to uh, these questions in two weeks, or maybe even next week, we'll start these just unanswerable questions that are so rich and will, again, just, I think, thrill us beyond, uh, beyond measure. Um, could, Scott, can you just thank the Lord? Uh, it's hard to even put these things into words, but, uh, but you've, thank you guys. It was such a good job thinking of through all this. So good. Yeah, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what an amazing chapter. We, I think we say it, like Jerry says, every, every week. It's just incredible verses in this in this chapter, in this most majestic chapter in the Bible, Romans 8. What an incredible joy it's been to just walk through this slowly and chew on it. And uh, What an incredible passage even this week, the golden chain. How incredible this is. Uh, that Once you're in this golden chain, you're not, you're not getting out. And Father, when someone asks us why we're a Christian, the, the simple answer is because uh, you have acted uh, in our lives for knowledge you for loved us uh, before the foundation of the, the world it's, it's hard to believe it's it's incredible and staggering that you would and uh you you have predestined us and then you enter space and time and you, you called us there are lots of general calls in my life and then there was the effectual call and that call you cannot refuse and we've been awakened and into the beauty of christ and what an amazing thing it is justified and then one day glorified in the sense that we're already there now, so Father, help us to, to worship you aright in light of these amazing truths. Help us to uh, be secure in these. Help us not to grumble and complain. Help us just to trust you. You're, you're sovereign and you're working in our lives uh, for our good. Everything in our life is going to conform us to the image of his Son. Father, help us to meditate on these truths. Help us to delight in them. Help us to take you at your word. Believe what, what you say and help us to honor you uh, with our lives. And we pray you'd be at work uh, through the singing, through the service, through the praying. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. If you haven't started Doriani, you get a chance to read this week. Josh, could you, if you think of it, put those five oh, yeah. uh, from Stott on there about predestination? I thought those were so, so good. Thank you so much for investing this time in God's Word.